Colossians chapter 4. And once you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Starting at verse 2 and going through verse 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech be always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer the Lord. Excellent. You may be seated. So since the very beginning of time, Christianity has always, always been an aggressively evangelistic way of life. It's always been that way. For the sake of life and for the sake of love. Jesus commanded in his parting passion for, his, for the church this. He said, go and make disciples. And he said, just before he ascended into heaven, he said this, you will receive power uh, from the Holy Spirit when he has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The early disciples of Jesus had these words just burned on their hearts when Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So they took up their cross, they laid down their lives, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied. The result is found in the book of Acts. Listen to these words from Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 2, verse 41. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. That day, 3,000 souls. Acts 4, the number of men came to be about 5,000. Acts 5, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes. Can you imagine that? Acts chapter 6, at this time, the disciples were increasing in numbers. And this took, took place around the, the time where they first brought about deacons. So there was a problem. They were, more and more people were coming, and so they had to try to figure out, how do we meet all these needs? Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly. In Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and it multiplied. Not, not simple addition. It multiplied. Acts chapter 12. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 16. So all the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in their numbers daily. Daily. So this is what Jesus really meant when he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You follow me. Something is going to happen 
when you lay down your lives and follow me, you are going to become fishers of men. There is going to be a multiplication thing going on in your life, in your community, in your neighborhoods, in the church community. There is going to be a multiplication effort. So as the Father has sent me, Jesus is saying, as he has sent me to seek and save those who are lost, so I am sending you, the church. And there are always seasons in the, in the life of the church where we need some kind of a wake-up call, some kind of a shaking uh, to, to go back to the simple and central and basic things that God has called you and me to be about. One of these things that we have got to be remembering is that Christianity is a converting religion, a converting faith. It's evangelistic. It is persuasive. It is expansive. And it is missionary-oriented. It is not coercive. It, it does not use a sword. It does not use manipulation. And it is not about brainwashing. But it does proclaim. It does persuade. And it does plead. And it does pray. It does pray. And where this is not believed, friends, and where this is not practiced, Christianity ceases to be Christianity and starts to become something else. When we lose a passion to see people one to Christ, when we cease to lose that, or when we start to lose that, we start to lose Christ. We must never forget, friends, that Christianity is a soul-winning an outward-reaching, a mind-persuading, a rescuing, missionary kind of faith, or it is not true Christianity at all. That's just how it is. We need to be reminded of this because it is incredible how listless and lazy our lives can become, all of us myself included, when we call ourselves Christians and we really look at the fruit of our lives and we go, really? Really? Little by little, our whole orientation slowly becomes inward focused. Inward focused. We can go months, years, and yes, sadly, even decades without even thinking about those who will perish eternally separated from Christ. We become so dull and spiritually callous that we don't even think about hell. We don't think about lostness. We don't think about the preciousness of Christ. We don't think about the power of the cross. We don't think about the freeness of the gospel. And we don't think about the command of Christ. So as we have been studying the book of Colossians, we have been acutely aware that there is this theme that centers around, that revolves all around Christ. He is our core. He is our center. He is preeminent. It is all about him. It's about Jesus. That's why we're gathered. It is about Christ. And so Paul has just finished this section for us in, in Colossians on what does it look like to have a Christ-centered home, have a Christ-centered workplace. And this passage for us this morning moves us in a different direction. And they're not opposed to each other. 
But it moves us in another direction. And the scope of this text moves us from outside of ourselves into the world. That's what it's doing. Paul sounds so much like Jesus who instructed his disciples to lift up your eyes to the fields. Look out there. Get your eyes out of here and look out. The harvest is plentiful, right? But the workers are few. He said, lift up your eyes. Look to the fields. And we are admonished here that Jesus-centered living is others-focused living. That's what it is. That's the reality. So in this passage, uh, chapter 4, 2 through 6, Paul describes two actions that will help us become who we truly are to be, to have an other's focus. And the first is there is going to be a reaching up in prayer. And secondly, there is a putting our legs and our lives and everything behind that prayer. So let's start off with the first one. In verse... Two, the first of three imperatives appear. Paul commands his readers to continue steadfastly in prayer. And this week, if you, if you looked out on my Facebook feed, I asked the question, be, just be honest. What, what are reasons that people do not pray? What are reasons? And one of the big reasons is we're just lazy. We're distracted, lacking focus. Other reasons were my heart just isn't in it. I'm not sure that God is really going to answer my prayer. Other reasons were, you know what, I really think I'm basically saying, I, I think I'm more effective than God. It's kind of a practical atheism. And so Paul is commanding us here, continue steadfastly in prayer. It's a command to pray all the time. And this nuance of steadfast and continue suggests a perseverance in prayer. Perseverance. Be devoted to this. Prayer takes work. It is a spiritual discipline. Paul does not offer it as an option if you have spare time or if there is something pressing. Pray. It's not like the little side options. Oh, would you like fries with your burger? No, this is the main deal. You need to be in prayer. It is necessary, a necessary reality for a person who is following Christ. He then follows up that imperative with like an almost an amplification with two critical words. He says we must be steadfast in prayer with watchfulness and thanksgiving. So these two concepts are effective, are, are critical for effective prayer. First of all, one must start with a watchful heart. In the, in the different commentaries, it, some say it may be looking for the return of God. Kind of turn your eye, pray with an eye towards the sky for Christ's return, longing for it. But more, more likely is the idea that we are to be looking to how God is going to be working in this world and how God is currently working in this world. Those people that I know who have a very effective prayer life are people who write down their prayers. And they're constantly recording, look at what, I, this is what I have prayed on this date and for what, and 
They write down the dates that they have seen God answering the, their prayers. They're, they're constantly watching and looking and longing. God, will you do something? I'm looking for you to move in my life, in my world, in my neighbor, in my, my spouse, my children. God, would you move? I'm looking for your hand moving here. Watching to see what God is doing and what he will do. There is an eagerness, a watchfulness. Watch prayerfully. Watch with open eyes and see what God is going to do. The second is one of thanksgiving, living in a life of thanksgiving. When, we've, when we pray, we are not only watching to see what God has done, it's not just a matter of a checklist either. It is one where we are recalling God's past blessings, God's past faithfulness, and what he is doing now. Thankfulness. Having a prayer life that is just steadfast, steadfast in the way that we, we see him working and it's recalling what God has been up to. But what do we pray for? What do we pray for? I see two things that Paul really wants the church in Colossae to, to be praying for, as well as things for us to be praying for. Namely, he is praying for an open door and a, a powerful word. He's praying for an open door and a powerful word. Or to put it another way, Paul wants God to work in believers. And he wants God to work in him personally. Work in believers, work in me personally. So first, for an open door for the word. You see this? In verse 3, he says, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word. What does he mean by this? Three other times in the New Testament, Paul uses this same image. At the, as a summary for his first missionary, with, missionary journey with Barnabas, Paul reports to the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 14 about what God has done. And Luke, the author of Acts, puts it this way. They declared all that God had done with them. And now, and how he has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So God opened the door and the result was faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul explains his itinerary like this. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So here, the, the door, the open door, is a set of circumstances that are going on in that time, in that place. There's a certain climate, climate of receptivity here that Paul's work becomes unusually effective. So there's an open door, and God is creating this open door. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord. So again, the open door seems to be this remarkable set of circumstances that would have made the gospel extremely effective. 
So when Paul pleads to the Colossians in this text, pray for us also that God may open the door for the word. I take that to mean that when Christians pray, hear that. When Christians, raise your hand if you're a Christian. Okay, when, keep them up. When Christians pray, that's you. When Christians pray, you can put them down. When Christians pray, God changes circumstances and God changes attitudes and God changes the receptivity of the word so that instead of hitting a brick wall, the word finds an open door and it becomes unusually effective. Think about that. Think about, let that sink into your mind right now, in your heart, in your mind. The key to opening a door of God's blessing will be prayer. But what do we often turn to? Man, I'm just going to work even harder. I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do these things. But the lacking ingredient is praying. Really praying steadfastly. Staying continuing in prayer. Watchful. With thanksgiving, praying. And Paul is saying, I need you to pray. For some reason and in some way in God's economy, when God's people pray corporately, collectively, individually, together, when they pray for God's will to be done, that the gospel will go out in this area and use the missionaries, God opens a door. We wonder why Things don't change in our world, in our community. And part of the reason is because we overlook our prayerless lives, our anemic prayerful lives. They're anemic. They're lacking the strength that is needed, the belief that God is going to break through. So that's the first thing, to just praying that, God, would you open A door for the word to go out because we believe that the word of God, the gospel is effective. It is the very thing that brings dead people back to life. It changes a hard heart and makes it pulsate with the good news of Christ. It it is now alive. So that's the first thing. But the second thing that Paul is asking for is for clarity and boldness for the preacher. The first goal of the text mentioned here is for prayer. The first thing, the first thing that we should pray for. The second thing is to pray for, that we should be praying for, is clarity and boldness of the preacher. Verses 3 and 4 say this, Pray also for us that God may open a door a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. In other words, not only is there a need for God to open the doors, there, there has to be something clear and powerful to send through the door. An open door is Useless unless it is actually being used to go through. 
Namely, what is going to be sent through the door? The word, the mystery of Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his, his resurrection, and his eternal reigning that he has come to save people like you and me. That needs to go through the door. And this is a prayer for the preacher. It is a prayer for the worship team. It is a prayer for our children's ministry team. It is a prayer for any others who take the word of God on their lips and speak it out. It's for you. As, as you go out into your workplaces as teachers, as, as executives, as, as plumbers, as air, airline folks, you name it. Wherever you go, if the word of God is on your lips, you are praying that you have clarity and boldness. And friends, how I need your prayers. It's the thing I long for. I, I, if I could say it this way, I lust for your prayers. Seriously, if Paul could imagine himself speaking the gospel in such a way that was not clear, was not bold, and was not powerful, and this is the apostle Paul, how much more can I imagine that for myself, right? If Paul is asking for it, think of it, the greatest preacher and missionary who has ever lived, apart from Christ, of course, said that the effectiveness of his preaching depended on the prayers of of his church. My effectiveness here this morning and my other six days of my life outside of this building depend on you. Depend on you. If that is true for Paul, it is a hundred times true for me. What happens this morning when I preach, and every other Sunday, depends in great measure on how you pray for me. One of the first things that you should be praying for on a Sunday morning is, God, would you use Paul in a powerful way this morning? Would you open a door? Would he have clarity? Would he have boldness to proclaim the clear gospel? And Lord, may lives be changed because of it. Lord, I'm praying for Paul right now but we have too much of a consumer mentality that we just show up, right? Order through the intercom, I'd like a burger, I'd like, like this, I'd like that, and put it into spiritual terms, I'd like a little bit of Jesus, I'd like a little bit of songs that I like to sing, and, and really a message that kind of warms my heart. In reality, we, we have the wrong mentality. God, I, I, I pray this morning that you will open the doors. Open those floodgates of heaven and pour down. And may there be absolute clarity and power in it. And may lives be changed. And Lord, if it starts with me, let it be so. But may they hear the gospel. So there, these are the two goals for Paul in prayer. That a door be opened in the lives of unbelievers. And secondly, that a clear and powerful gospel message would go through that door. And that lives will be changed. But that brings us to point number two. Faith without works is dead. And I can almost say the same is true. Prayer without action is dead. Right? So as we're looking at our second point, there's a need to put our legs and our lives and our resources, our men mentality, our thought process processes into prayer, into action. 
So look at verses 5 and 6, and they focus, take us off the focus of, if you will, a, an indirect kind of involvement of evangelism through prayer, because that's kind of a, it's not a hands-on, even though it is kind of hands-on, and it moves us to, to the daily feet on the ground, direct involvement of evangelism. That every person, every person in this room, everyone who takes on the name of Christ is to put on every day, wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you play. You are to do this kind of life. And there, there are five important things. I, I think that these two verses will tell us about sharing our faith with others. Let's look at them. First, we are exhorted. We are given the strong word to conduct ourselves wisely towards outsiders. Um, I don't know how many of you watched the news this morning or saw what happened in Orlando. Anyone? In Orlando, there was a tragic shooting in a gay nightclub called The Pulse. 20 people were shot. 40-some went into the hospital, and numbers of others were just scarred by this terrible, atrocious thing. And, and I, I think about that, and I saw on my Twitter feed, as I hit the hashtag about this whole news, news thing, the hate that went out at that. It was terrible. I'm just going, are you serious? And these are people like you and me who need the gospel, the good news of Christ. And there is a way that we act wisely towards outsiders. Let, let me give you a few, few ideas, a few things that I'm thinking about. One thing that I have in view is there, there are times when, when Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample on them, trample them underfoot, and turn to attack you. So wisdom requires us to act wisely. It requires us to be discerning as we speak and to whom we speak. So we got to think about the situation and what we share and when we share things. Think wisely. Sometimes we need to be, to be bold and we need to be forthright, really to the point to say, listen, this is the truth of Christ. While on other occasions, when, when people might be calloused or hostile or position themselves to fight, we need to keep our mouths shut. But we need to be wise about how we enter into these discussions. How, God, would you, through this terrible situation, would you open a door and would the gospel be wisely presented to these people? Wisely, in a timely manner. The other point of emphasis that Paul is, is using when he uses this word wisdom has to be, I think John Piper summarizes it really well, and so I'm going to just quote him directly. Listen, wisdom is this. Wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book seems to run out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. 
It is having a feeling for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. That, that is wisdom, being wise towards outsiders, looking at this situation and saying, what do they need and what they want? How can I be creative and clear and knowing that the gospel changes lives? When do I shut my mouth and just be a presence? And when do I open my mouth and be forthright. So acting wise towards outsiders. But secondly, we must not lose sight of the urgency of our task. Some of us like to really delay things or never really act, and we don't really have a sense of urgency, right? The ESV renders this, making the best use of our time, while other older translations retain a more literal translation where they say, redeeming the time. Some commentators do a good job of highlighting Paul's uh, emphasis. Uh, Peter O'Brien renders it as snapping up every opportunity that comes. He's snapping it up. You're, You're quickly picking up every opportunity that presents itself. Sounds a little bit different than making the best use of your time, right? Because sometimes we look and just say, best use of my time? Ah, not right now. This says there's, there's more of a creation of urgency. Another commentator, Murray Harris, is even more to the point. He says this, in the open market where the common commodity of kairos or time is on sale, Christians are to make a timely purchase for themselves. In other words, they are to seize eagerly and use wisely every opportunity afforded to them by time to promote the kingdom of God. So every opportunity as a public school teacher, as a working in the advertising kind of world, wherever you are at, you are using every moment unapologetically for advancing the kingdom of God. You are redeeming the time. The time the world is taking time and, and just throwing it away and it's going down the drain and you're saying, no, I am taking it back and I'm using it for the kingdom of God. Even if I'm making a high, big sale kind of moment right now, I am using this moment for the sake of the kingdom of God. I want to see it advanced here. I want to see it advanced here. I want to see it advance here. Every opportunity. But it is done wisely. Right? So don't waste any opportunity. Any opportunity that comes your way. Or squander the chance to, to walk boldly through an open door into a heart of an unbeliever. Don't squander that. If somebody shows up at your door or you see them as you're walking by, don't squander that opportunity. Every encounter, every encounter has the potential to be a soul-saving encounter. Could you imagine if your neighbors came to Christ because now you are finally buying up the moments, redeeming them, snapping them up, and saying, Let me be creative and tactful and patient and forceful and and clear and living in this limbo of how, God, do you want me to open this, have this door opened and have the gospel go out? Don't let fear or hesitation or lack of preparation steal that moment. Oh, I better read another book about that. In the moment, God is going to give you everything that you need. 
and you feel like you're going to screw it up, you know what? What God does with screw-ups, he makes them a preacher. So God can use you as well in every moment. I said the wrong thing. I should just shut up and never talk. You know what? Sometimes God uses those things in powerful ways to advance his kingdom. He uses weak people like you and me to advance his kingdom. So don't waste it. Third, thirdly, according to verse 6, our, our witness must always be gracious. Must always be gracious. Which is to say, as charming as possible without crossing the line of compromise. Be accommodating and be kind, says Paul, but not at the expense of truth. Gracious. What, what matters is not simply the content of the message, but the manner or the spirit in which you speak of Christ to others. In our, in our world of social media, we say things that are absolutely asinine, inappropriate, hurtful, because it just comes off our head and... <laughs> Take that. I have never met you before. I hope you understand. But in reality, we... we it's not just about the content. Your, your content may have been right on, hitting the target, but it is lacking the spirit of Christ, a graciousness. We are to be both pointed and pleasant in our witness. Think about that. Pointed and pleasant in our witness. Sadly, many embrace one to the exclusion of the other. We're overly gracious or overly pleasant, just kind platitudes, or we are just jerks that should have tape over our mouth 24-7. You said, what? So either they care for nothing but the truth, or regardless of how it is conveyed, or they are so afraid of sounding offensive or pushy that they end up totally deluding the truth and fail to articulate the realities of sin and death and hell. Fourthly, our proclamation of the mystery of Christ must be seasoned with salt. There is to be, there needs to be pungency to our preaching, a flavor of the worthy Savior that we believe in, that we've given our lives to. There's no virtue in being dull or lifeless or lukewarm in the presentation of the gospel. I've, I've sat around listening to conversations about Christians sharing their faith, and they're apologetic. And I'm going, really? That is not appealing at all. I love a great steak. I love steak. I love red meat. Love it. It's a problem. <laughs> I love throwing it on the grill, whether it be a gas-fired or a charcoal grill. I don't care. It is just delicious. But you want to know what makes it even better? <laughs> some good salt. It brings the flavor out. It becomes uh, tasty and your mouth waters. So do you talk of Jesus in a way that makes people's mouths water? They're just dripping and waiting for the next 
morsel to come? Do, do, you words, do your words and manner create the opportunity for a spiritual thirst to, to emerge? Or do you just leave them dry and questioning and wondering, should I take another bite? I know they bought me Starbucks. Is it worth another sip of this $5 coffee to listen to this presentation? I'm not sure. The psalmist said this in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do, do people see and sense the sweetness of the Savior when, when we speak of him? Do you have the same vibrancy for Christ that you have for your, your wife, for your children, your favorite workplace, your, your favorite team? Do you, do you talk the same way about Jesus Christ? And you say, you are not going to believe what Christ is doing in my heart. You're not going to believe how he has changed our marriage. This is absolutely amazing. Yes, be, be wise, be, be thoughtful, be all those things that we talked about before. But do you talk about it with a sense of excitement? Do we talk about how he is altogether lovely and therefore should not be made known as a, in an unlovely or an unappealing manner? Do you, how do you talk about him? Friends, Jesus tastes good. Don't spoil the perfect flavor of Christ by sinful additives or sour dispositions. Fifth and finally, we must be diligent, diligent to answer each person, each person. This doesn't mean to speak the same way to every person. Some of us kind of have, have a monotone way of talking about Jesus, and we don't know, oh, I'm talking to Donna now, so I'm going to talk to talk to Todd the exact same way that I talked to Donna, and it's, it should reap the same benefits as when I had this conversation over here. But the reality is that we, we need to address each person as he or she needs or according to their place in life. We must supply perceptive and discerning answers in accordance with the unique circumstance of each individual. Do you know the person? Do you have listening ears about where they are in their place in life? Not everyone hears the gospel in the same way. The same is true for you. you don't, we don't all hear the gospel in the same way. Some encounter Christ with, with probing and intellectual uh, objections, while others are struggling with deeply entrenched sinful habits. Evangelism should never be monolithic, as if it is just one mode or one manner of presentation that is suitable for every soul. Yes, each one is in need of a Savior to be saved from their sin. And of course, there is but one Savior, and His name is Jesus. But each person is also in a different stage of life facing his or her own unique set of trials and troubles, and each with a varying degree of understanding of the gospel and the character of God, and varying degree of who Jesus is and what he has actually accomplished. 
So in sum, I want you to be adept and I want you to adapt and pray that the Spirit would awaken their hearts and come and celebrate the mystery of Christ. God, open, open a door. Open a door. And then, Lord, would you open my, my mouth? Would you open their heart? So, Monsieur Day Church, I am calling you to be steadfast in prayer. Steadfast in prayer with, with persistence, with, with a watchfulness, and with, with this kind of gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done and is going to do. I, I want you to buy up every cotton-picking opportunity for eternity. I want you to buy it up with, with wise conduct, with, with your salty speech, and with individual attention to each person you come in contact with. And beneath it, set our eyes on Christ in the gospel until we, uh, until we taste and see Christ and even enjoy him in our own hearts, in our own lives. May we believe Christ when he says, I, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So, on the back board, we've had names of people up there that we've been praying for for some time. I don't know how many of you are actually praying for them. In front of the card said, I am praying for blank by name, asking for God's saving and renewing grace to break into their lives. Friends, some of you need to go back to that door, back to that bulletin door, board and pull off their name and actually take it home and pray. It does no good to be stapled onto that bulletin board without prayer. Pray diligently. God, open a door in Bob's life. Open a door so that the gospel may go through and it would be effective, unusually effective in their life. And God, I'm going to continue praying towards that end, praying that you would answer that prayer. Lord, I'm praying for Bob again this morning. I know I just prayed about this yesterday. Lord, I know I just prayed about this 15 minutes ago. I know I prayed about this last week. I know I did. But Lord, would you open a door? Would you open their, my mouth? And Lord, would you open their hearts? God, would you do it today? And would you even use me? Because I'm done being listless. I'm done being apathetic. Lord, apart from you, there is no life. I've tasted and I've seen that you're good. Would you make it good in their lives? Lord, I pray that you change my heart, a heart of stone for the gospel. And give me a heart of life, a heart that is bold, that is persistent, one that is constantly praying, God, would you use me now? And guys, that's what I need for you. I need this for our church. And we need it for our nation. 
We need it for our community. We need it to go around the world. God, for Joss Nigeria, as the Camulas are going back, Lord, would you open a door? Would you open their mouths and would you open hearts? God, for VBS, in eight short weeks, use me, number one. I'll talk to Amanda afterwards. Number two, as the invitations are going out, God, would you open a door for the gospel? Would you open my mouth? Would you open their hearts? So friends, for five minutes, we're going to pray out loud by name, and we do not need the whole story of the person that you're praying for in prayer. God knows the story. God knows the circumstances. Pray. Lord, would you... Would you pop it up there for me, Brent? I think it's up there. Briefly, in this way. I'm praying for God, would you do this in their lives? It doesn't have to be creative. It doesn't have to be long. But who is God placing on your heart today? After a long pause, I'll close us and then we'll move into communion. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord.